Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Let's start with uh, just a review of some of the interesting things I learned this weekend. Snuck out of town for a couple of days to a wonderful little medical conference that the Fresno Madera County Medical Society has every year. They get people down from UCSF and UC Davis, and they present all sorts of topics of medical interest, updates on whatever's changed in the last year, primarily aimed at internal medicine and family practice people such as myself. And, uh, well, there were a couple of things I won't bore you with uh, some interesting items about the uh, right to die in California, what the rules are, and how they've cha- how they just changed. Other rules also changed this last January, including how many hoops you have to jump through in order to uh, prescribe Subaxin, which is the drug that is given to people who are trying to get off heroin or uh, opiates of any type. Uh, it's an interesting drug because it kind of keeps you from going into withdrawal and it's a decent drug for pain, but it really doesn't let you get that kind of high so you don't get the reinforcement and you can gradually wean yourself. A little bit like a nicotine patch helping you not go through withdrawal. And uh, maybe nicotine patch also coupled with Wellbutrin, which takes away the desire to smoke because it interferes with the reward pathway. So tips for getting off the bad stuff uh, right here. Just a reminder that such medical interventions are short-term and very effective and uh, definitely worth looking into if you have a problem. Also, some interesting updates. You know, COVID's always a very, very moving target, so... I uh, wanted to do a, just a little COVID update. I promise this will only be a minute or two. And that is, first of all, I've been being asked a lot about boosters by my patients over the age of 50 who now would qualify for a second booster or a fourth, count them, four shots. Do I think they should do it. Well, folks, it's recommended for a reason. It's recommended because... Uh, your antibodies that we can measure in your bloodstream drop, and no one's quite sure whether those T cells, which are lurking around in your body tissues, are still up to the task. There does seem to be a fall-off in prevention of hospitalization starting at about six months after the last shot, so that's where this that data is what this recommendation for yet another booster is based on. So if your age is over 50 you should think about two things, one of which is, what's your risk status? Do you have any of the risk factors like hypertension, obesity, uh, diabetes? Are you uh, in a risk profession where you're likely to be exposed? Well, those would all be good reasons. The other thing I'm recommending people think about is, did you get side effects from your booster? Most people got some sort of blah yuckiness from their first two shots. But there's a small group of people who uh, got a flare from the booster. And those individuals, I'm going to tell you about another alternative suggestion, which will probably bridge you until the fall, effectively. And that's an agent which has been authorized and has been kind of underwhelmingly talked about. And that's an, that's an antibody treatment called Evusheld, evu S-H-E-L-D. And Evusheld is a is widely available, but it has to be given as a shot, intramuscular. So primarily in our community here in Santa Cruz, you can get that from the infusion center at the hospitals. And that's where people get their chemotherapy, and that's also where people get their blood transfusions. So the infusion centers are important, for those purposes, and they also have the ability to give this Evusheld. However, your doctor does have to fill out a special order, and you do have to uh, qualify, and there's a list, quite a long list, of qualifying codes uh, that are 
useful. I'm going to tell you that you will have to talk this over with your doctor. I was surprised at how many doctors up there in Fresno, Madeira, hadn't even heard about this stuff because our health department has been doing a good job keeping us up to date on it. Uh, the code that I'm going to tell you if you don't, if you think you need it, but you don't have uh, one of the standard things, and let me tell you what those are. You've got cancer and you're on active treatment. You've had an organ transplant. And by the way, that would actually include a corneal transplant, uh, anything where you're getting any kind of immunosuppressive drug like cyclosporin, even if that's been given, being given as an eye drop, would qualify you. People with uh, any kind of rheumatological condition, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, but basically any other uh, immunodeficiency. And uh, also, and this is where we get into the risk factors of obesity and diabetes, uh, non-specific autoimmune disorders, other disorders involving the immune system, not other, not elsewhere classified. So if your doctor agrees that it would be a good idea for you to get the immunoglobulin, basically similar to the old gamma globulin shots you used to give to people who had a roommate with hepatitis A, well, D89 is the code that your doctor could use. And of course, anyone who is taking one of the uh, drugs that affects the immune system, you know, all of those drugs you see advertised on TV for psoriasis or for widely psoriasis at the moment because it's such a big untapped market, but also rheumatoid arthritis. All of those agents do qualify you to receive Evosheld, and I, I think it's a good thing. Now, the other item I want to talk about is treatment, and in the wake of the emergence of uh, Omicron, basically it's Paxlovid first, second, third, and fourth. But Paxlovid is getting a lot easier to receive. This is the a drug we talked about a couple of months ago when it first came out. It's a protease inhibitor, and it's packaged with a drug that prevents it from being broken down by the cytochrome system. So there's a long list of drugs it interacts with. However, you could be switched to another drug, uh, and maybe if you feel like you're at high risk, this wouldn't be such a bad idea. However, uh, all it takes is one of those home antibody tests. Doctors do not have to uh do not have to examine the patient. This can be done over the phone just by uh, the patient uh, testifying that they have a positive anti antigen test. Treatment needs to start within five days of testing. And unless you have really bad kidney disease, you wouldn't be eligible. This is a pill. It's oral, which is lovely. And you take it twice a day for five days. Uh, you'll actually get three pills, two white and one pink, and you have to take them together. But this is going to be widely, widely uh, rolled out as soon as the uh, administration of our country figures out how to do it as part of the test-to-treat system. And, you know, God help you if you get regular prescriptions and your insurance will only let you get them once a month because we are larding so much extra work onto the pharmacies. I'm tearing my hair out dealing with the pharmacies, but I also understand that they're, they're stuck giving these shots. They're stuck doing all sorts of things that they aren't set up for, and they've had to reorganize. And guess what? The regular <laughs> mission of pharmacies is kind of falling by the wayside as they step in. And if we you know, give them another mandate, which is that they're going to test people and then treat them, uh, and explain to them how to take this and do the cross-check to make sure that they're not on any other drugs that uh, they shouldn't be in, in order to take Paxlovid. Well, let's just say that that's going to slow down your getting your prescription drugs. So uh, just saying, I guess, no good deed goes unpunished, and the people who pay, and we all may have to take a deep breath, keep charity in our heart, and assume that the person on the other side of that plexiglass screen is doing the best they can. Please, let's be nice to each other, okay? Let's try. It's really important right now. Let's talk about something you probably didn't know. 
if you get regular hormone testing for, let's say, your thyroid-stimulating hormone or your testosterone level, you should probably be aware of the problem with biotin. Biotin is sometimes called vitamin B7. It's a coenzyme. You only need 30 micrograms a day, and you generally get it from meat, fish, eggs, seeds, nuts, certain vegetables like sweet potatoes, spinach, and broccoli. So most of us don't need to take it as a supplement. However, high doses of biotin uh, are being prescribed by doctors for health conditions. And we're talking maybe, remember I said uh, that you could you needed 30 micrograms a day? Well, high doses, maybe 5,000 to 10,000 micrograms, that would be 5 to 10 grams a day. These are being uh, prescribed for certain types of hair loss, and a lot of people are just picking that up off the internet and taking it themselves to make their nails grow stronger or to help uh, with hair loss. And some doctors who treat multiple sclerosis are actually giving 3,000 micrograms a day. That's 3,000 milligrams or free grams. They're already doing that because they they see literature that it helps with multiple sclerosis, and this is something that is, well, there's basically no evidence whatsoever that biotin is harmful to your body, even in these massive doses that people are being told to take. But there is a problem. Recently, the Food and Drug Administration published a safety alert reminder to doctors and pharmacies reminding them that biotin can, quote, significantly interfere with certain lab tests and cause incorrect test results. Biotin's in a lot of things, dietary supplements, as I said, prenatal vitamins, a lot of things. And the labeling isn't consistent, so they may use micrograms, milligrams. Uh, Micrograms might be abbreviated differently as a sort of a UG, or it's actually supposed to be like the Greek letter, but it often comes out as looks like UG to people or MCG because that print is so small. Right after you take biotin, your level in your blood goes up and it can really affect your test results for hours or even days after you've taken the test. And the reason for that is that laboratories use tests called immunoassays and many of these tests use biotin as part of the testing method. So if there's excess biotin in the blood, it'll interfere in some, or but not all, immunoassays, and it can cause the results to be either falsely increased or falsely decreased. So you can't even consistently know what's going on. And here's the one that's a really big deal to me that I did not know, but I want to share it to all my healthcare providers out there in the audience, as well as all of my patients who might conceivably get chest pain and go to the ER. If you're taking biotin, your test for troponin, which is the test that they use in the emergency room to diagnose heart attacks, may be off. That could cause a heart attack to not be diagnosed. Very serious. It also uh, affects thyroid-stimulating hormone and the T4 and the T3 tests. That might cause your doctor to change your dose, thinking that you're on too much or too little. Also, the tests that we use for menopause, follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone, a test that we check in para, in uh, persons who show up with osteopenia, parathyroid hormone, and cortisol. So people who have low levels or very high levels of cortisol, they might have a normal lab test. So stop taking your biotin a few days before you get your lab tests done. I'd say three days would probably do the trick. It's going to peak at about three hours after you take it. And, of course, if you have uh, kidney issues, it'll take you longer to clear it. And maybe you need to rethink using the biotin because that troponin test, you know, that really makes the difference between whether they hospitalize you overnight uh, and watch over you in a uh, marginal situation where they're not quite sure what's going on could be a very serious process error. So I hope that gets out and gets your attention. Last week, we talked about uh, vitamin K quite a bit. And then I found this article and thought, oh, shoosh, I should have included this, but I guess I'll just follow up with it. 
And this was a study looking at vitamin K effects on body fat and weight. It was a three-year vitamin K study. And this was uh, vitamin K2. Those of you who were listening last week will will know. They received either uh, 180 micrograms a day of vitamin K2 as MK7 or placebo for three years. These were 214 women between 55 and 65. And they used the, well, they used a marker for vitamin K status to make sure that the people were actually taking the drug. And they looked at how fat was distributed. And what they found was really interesting. The MK7 treatment resulted in a significant increase in total and human molecular weight adiponectin and a decrease in abdominal fat mass and in the visceral adipose tissue, that's the belly fat that we know is so bad for us from a cardiac standpoint and which increases our risk of diabetes. This is uh, really significant. It seems that high vitamin K uh, intake supports loss of body weight uh, and the marker for that is if they get a high increase in their carboxylated osteocalcin, then you can be pretty sure it, that it is going to work for them. So we even have a marker that we can measure. And, uh, well, isn't that lovely? And it's only it's actually the dose that I tell you to take for osteoporosis. And also if you have uh, high coronary calcium scores, it's beneficial to take that much MK7. So... Lots of good reasons to take your vitamin K. So if you are afraid of needles, and by the way, your word for the day, trypanophobia is fear of needles, like as in hypodermic needles. And lots of people hate those. But uh, in the wake of difficulty with COVID-19 and all of the vaccines and the new and emerging technology of uh, directed mRNA, which we've talked about already to quite some extent, these vaccines can't be given orally. mRNA can't be given orally. It gets digested immediately. It's a very squiggly molecule, easily torn apart. So engineers at MIT wondered if it might be possible to smuggle the mRNA in Uh, inside some kind of protective capsule that could be engineered to actually inject it into the patients once it was in the stomach. Uh, These researchers are kind of into this idea. Uh, Several years ago, they collaborated to create a star-shaped structure that could fold up inside a capsule and then was released when the capsule dissolved in the stomach. And once free, that structure... Uh, remained in the stomach for months, slowly releasing, and they did it on three different things, malaria drugs, contraceptives, and HIV treatments. So they're wondering, well, could we do this with uh, a vaccine? Could we give an oral vaccine, like that little sugar pill I took when I was a child and getting vaccinated for polio? Uh, So they invented a large pill, uh, encased it in gelatin, and it's... uh, molded to shape like the shell of a tortoise, so one flat side and a domed side. And it carries a needle on the flat side that's engineered to penetrate the lining of the stomach only when the flat section sits flush against it, so with you know, no air or no space. Then the needle is triggered and it injects its payload painlessly into the stomach wall. The stomach, by the way, is a very thick, hollow muscle, so no worries about uh, penetrating that wall with a with a short needle. Uh, then it's encased in a lipid uh, polymer because you have to do that with the mRNA vaccines in order for them to be taken up by the cells. They are polar, that is to say they, they are water-soluble, so they don't do well getting across that lipid bilayer of the cell membrane unless you transport it and give it a little boost by making it uh, coated with lipid. But they were successful in mice, 100%, and pretty successful in pigs, about 66% of the time, in getting the mRNA into the pigs. So coming soon to you, perhaps, is a vaccine that you eat. And speaking of eating, 
How about edible fluorescent silk tags to help identify fake medications? One of the things that's happened in the last few years is an explosion of online pharmacies and in the last few years also supply chain issues. This has made it easier for counterfeiters to profit from fake and adulterated medications because people are willing to buy from new, from vendors that they don't normally use. That opens up a place for counterfeiters to step in and claim that they have, a, well, you name the drug, whatever's in demand. So researchers at the American Chemical Society have created edible tags with fluorescent silk proteins, which could be placed directly on the pills or float around in liquid medicine. Uh, the codes within the tags can be read by a smartphone app to verify the source and quality of the pharmaceuticals. So that's crazy. Online pharmacies, well, you know, you the, the uh, pharma companies put stuff on the outside of their products, barcodes, QR codes, holograms, RFIDs, uh, that helps the distributors and the retailers to manage in bulk, but it's not reasonable. And you could always just take the pills out and put uh, of the container and replace them with fakes. These researchers wanted to see whether they could use silk because it's edible and generally recognized as safe. And uh, they uh, basically grew it by creating mutant silkworms to produce uh, the fibers of silk that had either a cyan green or a red fluorescent protein attached by adding the gene to make that, obviously. Uh, They then dissolved the silk cocoons to create these fluorescent polymer solutions. Then they wrapped those around white silk, created a 7 by 7 grid of silk thread, and created a pattern on that. So the using the optical filters over the phone's camera, you uh, they created a scannable fluorescent pattern which can be decoded, and opens up opens up a web page which hosts information about the drug source and authenticity. And this really made me flash on Blade Runner. There's a scene uh, where the uh, this guy is uh, dealing with eyeballs, and the eyeballs all have a they're all grown for the replicants, and they have a little, little tiny serial number on the outside of the iris. And uh, yeah, serial numbers on replacement organs, edible silk, and uh, who knows where science fiction is going to turn into science. But uh, wow, I'm intrigued by the whole concept. And I'm intrigued to talk to our first caller, and that is Curtis. Hello, Curtis. Hi, Dr. Hi. I love your program. Been listening to you for many, many, many years, and uh, always very interesting. I called uh, several weeks ago, and I talked to you briefly about uh, I had a calcium coronary test, and it's the first time I had it. I'm 70, but I've been in pretty good health my uh, whole life, and um, I was concerned because this was something that I hadn't considered before. Or uh, I was told that to be concerned uh, somewhat, I don't know if concerned is the right word, but I should be paying attention to my coronary calcium. And uh, so I was supposed to call you back with my numbers, and I actually came down with pneumonia and didn't do anything for a while. Oh. So I just listening to you today, and you mentioned that you talked about A2 and all this stuff last week, and I didn't want to waste your time or the listeners time going back through that and but it's very intriguing to me and um so what i understand is that k2 is beneficial but are there limits to how much you can take uh you probably could take quite a bit more than the 150 micrograms but that seems to be a good dose for uh, Mm -hmm. raising this uh, osteocalcin and allowing the calcium that's in the arteries to decrease and also preventing further uh, levels. What what was your calcium score again? Well, I don't, I, uh, it's all tied, my computer was stolen, and so I, all my information I'm having to reconstruct, and I haven't been able to do that yet. Okay. Well, do you remember but if the number was greater than 100? 
Yes. Okay. It was over. All right. So, so, so you're. reason I recall 1100, but I'm not sure if that's right. Well, that is certainly possible. That would be a pretty high score. That would put you in a high in a high risk group, and you would you would want to get further testing and make sure that yes. you know. And this is one of those situations where statistically you have a NNT of 50. So that means you are a high-risk person who has not had an event. And what, what we know about that is that you, if you go on a statin, that and there are things that I'll tell you that you would want to do to compensate for what the statin will do that's a sort of collateral damage. But if you go on a statin, you'll get immediate uh, in anti-inflammatory benefits. And that's an, an important an information. We are now starting to think that statins might actually be helpful in keeping people with COVID out of the hospital, not because that has anything to do with cholesterol. It's because of this anti-inflammatory benefit. And so a statin, 300 milligrams of CoQ10 with every statin for as long as you're on it, and some fish oil, which both reduces the chance of clotting, calms down the platelets, and is also anti-inflammatory, would be my recommendation for going forward as a treatment pattern that would help prevent risk from turning into event because we have to remember right. you don't have a disease you have a risk for a disease and there's yeah. a, a real strong social tendency even in, amongst doctors to conflate those two things but when we actually yeah. get down to the numbers NNT which means number needed to treat is 50 which is at the top end of what I consider legitimate for a low-risk drug, which is to say if we take 50 people with your risk factors over 10 years, uh, we prevent one event, one heart attack. So that, and that's kind of, like I said, that's, that's, the, that's the bar. Uh, after, uh, if, if, it's more, if it's 225 people uh, to prevent one event, then... You know, it starts to be debatable whether that's a good idea. It depends on what's wrong with the drug. But in the case of the statins, they do reduce CoQ10. You need to replace that. And in general, I find that if people are are full of CoQ10 before they start on the statin, they don't get any muscle aches and they don't get any other side effects. And so I'm hoping what that means is that they aren't getting any brain effects or mitochondrial effects from uh, mm-hmm. their lowered CoQ10 that we wouldn't be able to identify. Interesting. I started, uh, I was reading about the effects of B3 and calcium, and I uh, was listening to a, a fellow uh, uh, from uh, England, uh, Dr. Don Campbell, pretty interesting guy. No, so anyway, I, I, was gonna, I didn't know a lot, and I learned so much about B3. And uh, about, you know, uh, battling, or not battling, but, you know, protecting yourself from COVID and other things, and about skin color and latitude where you live. And I really started digging into this, and I was fascinated with what I learned. And so I also found out that if you're doing, you know, uh, increased levels of D3, uh, that it affects calcium, if I got that right. And so... I started looking at K, K2 as, to deal with the calcium. And then I've always been uh, interested in the fish oil for anti-inflammatory and other stuff. I've been putting on weight. And so uh, my doctor put me on high blood pressure and wanted to put me on statins a couple of years ago. And I said, well, I'm going to see if I can do it with uh, fish oil. Let's see if we can get the cholesterol down. And so... I'm kind of tiptoeing around the edge of everything, but you gave it a focus that I hadn't thought of. And so uh, I'm supposed to be going back to get more testing, but uh, it's just so hard right now because the medical folks are, um, you know, they're just overloaded. Mm -hmm. There's so many protocols. And uh, I mean, I've got good health insurance. I, you know, I'm not going to mention it, but it's a federal employee plan because I'm a retired federal employee. So, you know, I've got, and I've got Medicare because I'm over. Right. Yeah. So it's, 
my act together and getting organized and walking in the office being reasonably, I tend to be a somewhat skeptical of a lot of what I hear. I was a pre-med student. Right. Curtis, let me let me interrupt you for for just a moment sure. to say th- to say that you were just a poster child for the the situation that we're in as a as a medical system right now. Right. In that in that, so far as it's obvious, you have risk factors, but you don't have symptoms. And I'm hoping that you would you you know if you had any symptoms immediately go be a squeaky wheel in urgent right. care or a, an ER and not engage in any kind of denial. I also want to be sure that you aren't taking huge doses of biotin, so that if you do have a coronary event, <laughs> you're... <laughs> That's where you caught my attention, because I've been taken biotin. Yeah. Not a lot, but I've been taking a little bit. <laughs> yeah, well, you'll need, to tell, you'll, need to, you'll need to maybe tell them that you're taking it. There are alternative ways they can test troponin if they know that well, they, they have, that they have to use it. Good. Good, but we can't rely on busy people to always remember to ask that. They're, they've got a pretty long checklist to deal with. And uh, okay, so I kind of scratched my head and was wondering why they asked me that. So now you've just explained. I've it just explained. It. So I get it. All right. Yeah. Well, how about you make? How about we make a pact? All right, my friend. Yeah. Let's make yeah. a pact that you will at least get a stress test, mm-hmm. and. Uh, just make sure that when you're run, when you're exercising at full capacity, and they have a protocol mm-hmm. so that they you know don't wipe you out. But if you're exercising at your full capacity, um, a little harder than you would ever exercise on purpose, uh, mm-hmm. you know, obviously running from a bear is <laughs> a different mm-hmm. situation. But but right. uh, at, a little harder than you would ever exercise on purpose, and you don't show any electrical abnormalities in your heart. That means the pipes are open enough, so you probably don't have critical stenosis or a big plaque sitting around somewhere in those arteries that mm-hmm. is just waiting to rupture and trigger uh, an event. Never, that being said, stay on the fish oil because that's going to be as beneficial as an aspirin and less likely to cause GI bleeding. I'm going to sign off now, Curtis, but thank you so very okay. much for the call. You're a wonderful program. Thank you. Bye-bye. This from David, uh, who used that contact us email. David writes, uh, I listened to your podcast last night, maybe uh, uh, not, not the most recent one, and there was a listener question about CPAP and dry mouth, and she asked about using tape. As you probably know, dry mouth with CPAP is common, and they could buy a strap made just for this to keep your mouth shut. This is a fabric cuff that goes around the chin and the rest loops around the back top of the head. It's made of very soft and stretchy material, doesn't irritate the skin, and if you need to open your mouth to talk, perhaps you can. Less than 20 bucks. Could also be used without CPAP to reduce snoring, although there's some controversy about that. In a future podcast, could you address this issue? A 72-year-old female whose mouth has been increasingly susceptible to irritation primarily from eating rough foods like grilled bread, but also could be chemical, such as acidy or spicy. Been dealing with dry mouth, lips that burn, even with medium spices that keep peeling uh, endlessly and sores on the cheeks, I'm assuming on the insides of the cheeks. Affects the sense of taste, so favorite dishes are either not turning out right or can't taste the flavors as expected. Well, David, this really sounds like some kind of hypersensitivity reaction, possibly a type 2 hypersensitivity. Uh, Those are very common in the mouth, and the peeling lips are one of the things that makes me think that. Uh, There's certain foods, uh, cashews and mangoes, uh, the inside skin of the mango in particular, are notorious for causing this reaction. And also, uh, there are many ingredients in toothpaste, like sodium lauryl sulfate, which people can become sensitized to. So it's important to look really, really closely at what's going into the mouth every day and try to switch up everything. And that might mean a baking soda and peroxide toothpaste, you know, something that's totally non-commercial. Uh, it could be the mint flavoring, which is in just every toothpaste, for example. So you really have to open your mind 
there. Another thing we have to think about is uh, testing for Sjogren's, which is an autoimmune disease that causes dry mouth and uh, can cause enough inflammation to create the symptoms you're talking about. I'd put that as a long shot. Uh, Another one that's maybe a little more likely in a 72-year-old woman is B12 deficiency. As we get older, we often will uh, not make as much stomach acid, and that absence of stomach acid impairs our ability to absorb B12, and we become uh, deficient. A couple of other vitamin deficiencies, uh, vitamin C deficiency, although that's fairly rare uh, in this part of the world unless you have an eating disorder, but I'll just run through it. it. Vitamin C deficiency can also cause a lot of oral sensitivity and bleeding in the mouth and soreness. Uh, another one that can do it is heavy metal toxicity, like lead in particular, can uh, and mercury can cause a sore tongue and altered taste. So we've got quite a lot of possibilities there. But the autoimmune testing is just autoantibodies, and so she should have an autoantibody panel. I would check methylmalonic acid, which is the best test to do for B12 deficiency because the quote-unquote normal range of B12 is so broad, and yet normal for a population does not mean the same thing as adequate for an individual because there are many B12 mutations that are fairly common, affecting, say, 3, 2, or 3% of the population. One out of 30 people is certainly getting into the territory where you should be thinking about a, a good diagnostic test like the methylmalonic acid. Well, I hope that was helpful. And uh, certainly a uh, biopsy of the inside of the cheek, if there is dry mouth, would be something to think about. But get that antibody testing and the methylmalonic acid right out of the box here and use a elimination protocol to just take away all of the daily foods and switch them off to something else. This could be something as ubiquitous as coffee. God forbid I would hate to become allergic to coffee. But nevertheless, if I did, I'd have to find a substitute. There's always a way around these problems. New Ways Around Old Problems is the subject of the next story. Uh, A cell therapy, which was developed by the Schmidt Heart Institute, has found another use, uh, stabilizing weakened muscles in patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. The product in question is called cardiosphere-derived cells. These are progenitor cells, not quite stem cells, but immature cells derived from heart, uh, human heart tissue, which have been used in multiple clinical trials. They don't have the antigens on them. And the, these uh, cells have been used to improve heart function. Uh, published, there was a study in Lancet way back in 2014 that showed that uh, infusing these cardiosphere-derived cells uh, into people who just infusing them into the hearts of people who had had a heart attack reduced the uh, size of their heart attack scars and it preserved uh, cardiac function. The current study on Duchenne multiple dystrophy or muscular dystrophy that we're talking about used uh, IV infusion. And, And this type of muscular dystrophy is a genetic disorder. It primarily affects males because it's caused by mutations on a gene on the X chromosome. The, the, the blueprint for making a protein called dystrophin is missing on that X chromosome. Now, women have two X chromosomes most of the time and have, therefore, a backup copy and are able to make enough of the protein that they don't develop this disease under most circumstances. The children born with this mutation will have muscle weakness in their entire body, and it's they can't even as children run or jump. Uh, they have a hard time getting up after sitting, pedaling a bicycle, and as they get older, they become extremely sick. In fact, they typically don't live into their 30s. Most are using a wheelchair by the time they're teenagers, and the only they're really 
is only one improved medicine for this disease, and it doesn't do much. So the idea that we might be able to do anything is uh, really great. So there are two uh, simultaneous trials going on right now with this stuff in muscular dystrophy patients, and it's uh, given IV four times a year, every three months. Uh, They are looking at upper limb impairment and tracking how that went, and they only tested eight children, although there's a much bigger placebo trial also ongoing. This one's finished, so it just got published. And so 12 uh, got the cell therapy, 12 got placebo, and eight got cell therapy, and nobody knew. It was double-blinded, the doctors and the patients didn't know. The patients who got this um, CDC uh, drug did much better. They were 71% slower at deteriorating, and their heart function actually improved in the cell-based therapy. So since most people die of heart disease, this is a big plus. The HOPE-3 study is still ongoing. This was a safety trial, and nobody had any bad side effects. So now we're thinking in terms of seeing if we can develop this therapy, figure out the dose, figure out the dosing schedule, and maybe bring some relief to people with a really terrible disease. Our next story is uh, also a concept that's gotten a boot in the pants over the last couple of years due to lockdown and decreased mobility. It's much harder, as uh, Curtis mentioned, to get into a doctor for anything. And that... uh, is probably going to be with us for a while. So we need to think outside the box. And certainly there's been an efflorescence of telemedicine. They're now paying for doctor's visits remotely, which means doctors are willing to do them, which means that patients don't have to spend so much time driving and waiting in the waiting room and potentially being exposed to infections in the waiting room. And isn't that a COVID bonus all by itself? Well, what about surgery? We have robotic surgery. Well, what about telerobotic systems? And we're back to MIT again. I think they dropped a lot of press releases in the last two weeks or something. Uh, anyway, they have, uh, they're announcing a new telerobotic system that would help remotely treat patients who've had a stroke or an aneurysm. It's, I'll tell you more about this modified joystick, but first of all, let's just Uh, talk about strokes and aneurysms, but particularly strokes. When a person has a cerebrovascular accident, you really have very, very little time to save those brain cells. And in fact, so little time, they call it the golden hour. But if a person can be evaluated and treated during the first couple of hours of their stroke, you you can open up blood flow the brain, which is it's not dead yet, it's offline because it's hibernating, kind of like what happens to your computer when you're on your uh, battery backup, uh, inter- uh, let's see, uh, uninterruptible power supply, except you better turn off the screen right away and turn down the computer because <laughs> it doesn't last that long. However, uh, if you can get in there and open up the clot, well, you can make a big difference. But getting in there requires a highly skilled surgeon. You've got to manipulate a thin little wire up into the clot and then thread a catheter over it and then deliver drugs or uh, through the catheter to melt the clot or else break it up mechanically or suck it out with suction, depending on the circumstances. And those blood vessels in the brain, go take a look look at an image. They are uh, squirrely, twisty, twiny blood vessels. So having invented this arm, which is controlled by magnets and is itself pretty squiggly and is able to thread that thin wire just like the human hand can, the researchers created a glass brain with transparent uh, blood vessels. And with just an hour of training, neurosurgeons could control the robot's arm and guide it through what they were seeing through the mass of vessels to reach the target location. So with practice, you could uh, have these machines in rural hospitals just sitting there waiting to be 
turned on with the click of a switch, and a neurosurgeon at a major medical center could use live imaging of the patient through the scanner and operate during the golden hour. It's a, uh, it takes hours of training to build one of these guys, but maybe we'll be keeping them very, very busy. It reminds me of 20 years ago when we started uh, sending x-rays to Australia in the middle of the night where it was daytime there to have them read by radiologists so that the radiologist didn't have to sit around all night in the hospital and we could still get our scans read by an expert. Well, this uh, manual device it has the promise to do that. So once uh, proof of concept is established, then you start getting into the economics and the feasibility. However, given what it costs to treat a person after a stroke and deal with their disability, uh, an investment in the front end to keep people enabled seems like a very good deal to me. Now, we've been talking a lot of, about a lot of positive science. Uh, science is always double-edged, and this is an interesting study came out of University of uh, Texas uh, Southwestern researchers at the Department of Plastic Surgery. And uh, selfies are driving plastic surgery requests by uh, distorting people's perceptions of their facial features. Uh, Dr. Bardia Amirlach, Associate Professor of Plastic Surgery at UT Southwestern, explained that patients increasingly use photographs they've taken of themselves with a smartphone to discuss their goals with a plastic surgeon. And what he noted was uh, an increase in requests for nose jobs, rhinoplasty, uh, particularly among younger people. And he wondered, you know, well, we know these cameras can distort images. I certainly, uh, depending on which phone I uh, I use or which camera I'm using, I look really different to myself. So they worked with about 30 volunteers, 23 women and seven men. Uh, the researchers took three photographs of each person, one from 12 inches and 18 inches away with a cell phone to simulate uh, the selfie taken with either a bent or a straight arm and a third from five feet away with a single-lens uh, reflex camera, the type that they use in plastic surgery clinics. Same lighting cons- uh, conditions, everything else equal. And then they looked at how much distortion. Now, on the average, the nose was uh, 6.4% longer on 12-inch selfies and 4.3% longer on the 18 inches. And there were also a 12% decrease in the length of the chin and a 17% decrease in the 18-inch uh, selfies. So that uh, we don't look at size in an isolation. Our brains look at relative proportions. And as a portrait artist who, who sculpts, I can tell you that you know a 2% difference between the nose-to-chin ratio really changes my ability to get a likeness on the person that actually looks like them. You can get the eyes perfect and the lips perfect, but if the nose and the chin aren't just right, it doesn't look like them and they're unrecognizable. And of course, uh, adolescents are trying to develop a stable sense of, of identity. They're, they have issues with neurodevelopment. They're in the process of figuring out who they are and what they are and including what they look like. And so the selfies emphasize making comparisons with other people. And uh, there is, in fact, I don't know if you're aware of this, there's the emergence of something called the selfie face, which is, uh, you know, amongst all the influencers, you may notice they're all starting to look quite a bit alike. And it's because they're larding up their face with a ton of filler, trying to look like, you know, the tip-top influencers because, hey, there's money, there's gold in them, the hills. So we're really dealing with some interesting cultural phenomenon here. Let's see. Uh, we may or may not have a caller, so I'm going to do a, uh, a I'm going to do a quickie and talk about a low sodium, high potassium diet and uh, good genes and exercise. And those are both short ones that I can interrupt if I need to. 
uh, for a quick call. So if you want to limit your cardiovascular uh, risk, you probably want to eat a low-sodium, high-potassium diet. The sodium-to-potassium ratio is probably the most important thing. And it's not, it's not so much that it's not so much that sodium by itself is bad, but uh, people who get rid of a lot of sodium and uh, have definitely, and this is a test looking at their urine, uh, definitely are in the higher quartile for hypertension and cardiovascular events, whereas people in who get rid of the most potassium, in other words, people have a high potassium diet, have uh, one fewer cardiovascular event per uh, 100 people. That's pretty amazing. This is regardless of age. How can you get more potassium? Well, really simple. Go out and get salt substitute and mix it 50-50 with your salt in your salt shaker. So mixing the potassium chloride 50-50 with regular salt won't uh, taste as bitter as trying to use just potassium chloride instead of sodium chloride. Go ahead and give it a try. Your heart will thank you. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long, and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.